This is Positively Farming Media. If we want a specific result, we have to do specific things. This applies no matter what we're working on. Learning to cook requires practicing specific techniques. Becoming a faster runner requires repeating specific drills or miles over and over again. And getting our best harvest from our gardens requires us to perform specific tasks. Welcome back, my gardening friends, to another episode of Just Grow Something, where today we're talking specific tasks we need to perform in the garden to get our best yield and to keep the harvest going through to the fall. Now, unfortunately, our gardens are not just set it and forget it kind of things. We can't just put the plants out there and come back in six weeks and expect a harvest. And as the days heat up and summertime events take over, it can be very tempting to skip some of these things in favor of some other more fun activities. Activities. We're going to run down the list of eight things that we need to be paying attention to as the gardening season moves on in order to keep things running smoothly. Any one of these things by themselves can be critical to our garden success, but I would say that the first three are the most vital in my experience. So if we're short on time or desire to work in the garden, that's where I would focus. And I'll be upfront about how difficult this can be when it's hot and sweaty and dusty and dry and the pool is calling your name, which is why having a checklist in front of you of weekly tasks can help get you in the garden and done so you can enjoy the rest of your summer activities knowing your garden is well tended. Let's dig in. Hey, I'm Karen, and I started gardening 18 years ago in a small corner of my suburban backyard. When we moved to a five-acre homestead, I expanded that garden to half an acre, and I found such joy and purpose in feeding my family and friends. This newfound love for digging in the dirt and providing for others prompted my husband and I to grow our small homestead into a 40-acre market farm. When I went back to school to get my degree in horticulture, I discovered there is so much power in food, and I want to share everything I've learned with as many people as possible. On this podcast, we explore crop information, soil health, pests and diseases, plant nutrition, our own nutrition, and so much more in the world of food and gardening. So grab your garden journal and a cup of coffee and get ready to just grow something. If you're new here, welcome. There are many previous episodes of this show that I will link to in the show notes that pertain to each of these specific tasks as their own subject. So if you want more than the overview I'm going to give you today, you can absolutely go down that rabbit hole along with articles on these subjects on my website that I will link to as well. Now, before we dig in, I have a new Apple podcast review this week. This five-star rating and review comes from DKPZ. Who says, very educational, just what I need as a new gardener. I am so very glad to hear that. And welcome to the Just Grow Something family, my gardening friend. And if you are loving this podcast, the best way to grow this community is to share your favorite episodes with other gardening friends. So if you know someone who might need a little push to get into the garden this week, share this episode with them and let's see if we can't get them out there, shall we? So a lot of these tasks are going to sound really obvious, or at least they should be. But I know as we get busy, many of these tasks tend to fall by the wayside. To help our vegetable and our fruit plants to produce their best harvest during the summer, these are the top eight tasks that I think a gardener should consider and should keep on a list just to check off every single week. 
And this first one might not be as obvious as you think, and that is watering. Now, again, if you're new here, I am a market farmer with my husband. We are on 40 acres, and four of those acres are planted to fruit and vegetable plants, and they are not near the house, which means they are not near our municipal water source. We do not have irrigation in the majority of the areas of the farm. Now, I do have what I refer to as my kitchen garden, which is the raised planter beds that are out in the front of my house. And I do have access to water there. So in all of our larger areas, we have always relied on Mother Nature to give us the water that we need and then relied on mulch to trap that water in the soil. And, you know, generally speaking in previous years, this has worked fairly well. We did have a really bad drought um, back in 2012 where things did not do well, and we were in a drought last year. It looks like we're going to be in a drought this year again. But in most instances, when we've gotten rainfall, it has watered very deeply, and it's been sort of infrequent, which is what we want to mimic in our gardens, right? Watering deeply and infrequently. But for some reason, even though I have access to a hose and sprinklers, etc., in my kitchen garden, up until I think the last two years, I really wasn't watering those garden beds either. I don't know if my aversion to that was just, I don't know, I had it stuck in my head that, well, the rest of the gardens didn't need it, so these shouldn't need it either. But it wasn't until I started paying closer attention to the amount of water that the individual crops were getting and how that changed, how well they were producing, that I started to consider that maybe if I had the ability to give them that water, that they would do better. And obviously, they do. There's no reason why our gardens need to kind of suffer through, you know, whatever Mother Nature is throwing at us, whether it's a drought or whatever, if we have the ability to be able to water. So much so that we actually have created a water wagon this year that we can take out into our larger fields, at least one of them anyway, and be able to provide um, some sort of emergency water to our plants, which actually is going to have to happen this week because we haven't had enough rain and it's supposed to hit 104 degrees here on Thursday. And the field has got the tomatoes and the peppers and the green beans and the sweet potatoes and all of that stuff is desperately, desperately dry. So when we're talking water in the garden, again, deeply and infrequently is kind of our goal here. We don't want frequent shallow waterings. Deep watering sessions is going to encourage those plants to develop really deep root systems, which definitely makes them more resilient to drought. So you want to be providing enough water to penetrate that soil at least six inches deep. And this can take longer than you think it does depending on your soil type. Remember, we talked last week about how water moves differently through different types of soils. So don't just turn the hose on for 10 minutes and assume that it's good. Check the soil moisture before you move on to the next section of the garden. And don't just set, it's like you've got your drip irrigation or soaker hose is don't just set them to be on a timer and water every single day because 
What I have found with the experiences that I've had here in, you know, really kind of creating drought tolerant gardens is that if you water them too frequently, they start to depend on that. And so if something happens with your irrigation or something happens and you forget to water or you go out of town and the person who's supposed to be watering doesn't do things the way that you do, your plants are going to suffer. So you've got to try to start uh, to strike that happy balance in there somewhere. So deep waterings, six inches deep, and just make sure that you are monitoring that soil moisture level. Um, especially when you were talking about summertime watering, using the right watering method is going to make a different uh, a difference. Different watering methods are going to suit different plants and different soil types better. Drip irrigation or soaker hoses that deliver water directly to the soil line is going to minimize that water loss through evaporation. Sprinkler emitters that are low to the soil level are also a good option. You generally want to avoid overhead sprinklers if possible. They can, you know, waste the water through evaporation and they might promote fungal diseases. But if that's all you've got, something is definitely better than nothing when we're talking about a drought situation. Watering in the morning or in the late evening is going to be your best bet. Um, Watering in the morning especially allows the plants to absorb the moisture before the heat of the day hits. So that's going to minimize the evaporation. It's also going to give the leaves time to dry if you have to use an overhead sprinkler. So, and that's going to help to prevent the development of like fungal diseases. So if you're watering at the soil level, the evening is not a bad time for watering either. You just don't want the leaves soaked before going into the overnight hours when, you know, they're going to dry off more slowly. And again, that's going to promote fungal diseases. So at the soil level, not necessarily the base of the plants. You see a lot of these instructions like, oh, water at the base of the plant. Well, if you set up irrigation at the base of the plants when they were little and you haven't adjusted that, consider that that root system may be like six to 10 inches further out by now. So you may need to adjust your watering according to how big your plant has gotten in order for it to be more efficient. Um, Just monitor your soil moisture. Regularly check the moisture level of your soil by sticking your finger into the ground. And if it feels dry at a depth of about two to three inches, then it's time to water. You can also get one of those soil moisture meters um, and you can stick that down and further and it will actually help you accurately figure out what the soil moisture content is. And you just want to consider your weather conditions. Like I said, we are super dry here right now. It's going to be really crazy hot this week. So I'm actually going to have to get out there and water. And I'm adjusting my watering schedule in the kitchen garden too, based on the incoming weather. If there has been significant rainfall where you are, though, you may need to reduce or even skip your watering sessions because overwatering for your plants is just as bad as underwatering. So heat waves are dry spells, increase the watering sessions, even if it's just temporarily, you know, and then if you've had a really good rainfall, you don't need to water at all. Just don't have it sort of automated at all times. Now, something else that I see that goes hand in hand with the watering situation would be task number two on here, and that is refresh your mulch or 
at it if you haven't already. And if you're listening to me, you know that I say mulch, 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 mulch all the time. So I'm really hoping that you have already mulched. We we know that mulch is great for weed suppression. It helps with soil temperature regulation and the moisture content, keeping that, trapping that moisture in there. Erosion control. Um, if you're using organic mulches, it's going to help improve your soil fertility. It's also going to help uh, the soil structure improve over time. It can actually help act as a physical barrier between the soil and your plants, which can reduce your chance of the soil-borne diseases splashing up onto the leaves and stems, so mulch can act as disease prevention. It also will help retain the nutrients in the soil because it can slow down the movement of the water through the soil, which can help reduce nutrient leaching. Mulch also helps to reduce the need for you to cultivate in between your plants because, again, it's suppressing those weeds and it's minimizing the soil disturbance, which makes it easier to maintain your garden. And it just looks nice. It's got a good aesthetic appeal. So our goal is a minimum of two inches of mulch to get these effects. This could be up to four inches, depending on where you're gardening and what your conditions are. If you frequently get really, really hot weather, then you're going to be leaning more towards that four inch side to help keep that soil cool and to help trap that moisture in. Also, if you have like really persistent weeds, um, you're also going to want to be closer to that four inch side. Now, even if you put fresh mulch down this past spring, check it. If there have been heavy storms or if you have critters in the garden that like to move things around, you might actually have less mulch there in your garden than you think. So number two on the task list would be to refresh your mulch. And obviously, this isn't something that you're going to have to do every single week, but you want to do it periodically just to make sure everything is still going well. And to round out the top three, we're going to talk about weeding. I know it is not a favorite task, but regularly removing the weeds from our garden beds is a good idea because those weeds are going to compete with our plants for nutrients and water and sunlight. So if there is no time in the garden for any of the remaining tasks that I'm going to talk about, removing weeds should be at the top of your list behind watering and mulching. There are many types of weeds that absolutely thrive in summer heat. And so they can go very quickly from being tiny little things that are popping up out of the soil to monsters in just a matter of days. So remove them as soon as possible because they're going to steal the moisture and the nutrients from your plants as they grow. And having too many weeds can also encourage insect pests and diseases to move in. And these are things that we don't want to have to deal with if we don't have to. They're easiest to pull when they're young. Moist soil makes this task even easier. So if you can do it immediately after a watering session or after a rainfall, that really makes quick work of it. Another reason to tackle them when they're young, you do not want these weeds to go to seed. Did you know that a lamb's quarter can produce 150,000 seeds in a year from one plant? That's a lot of future weeding that you can avoid in the garden by just picking that thing now when it's little. Again, if there is nothing else that you do throughout the rest of this list, then keeping up the in on the weeds 
it, it should be one of your main priorities. I used to think that the weeding was just about aesthetics and I often would let it go and I ultimately would pay the price for it. I would either have insect pressure or I would have disease pressure or the plants that I was growing wouldn't get enough sun or those weeds would be sucking up all the moisture and all of the nutrients and I just would not have a very good harvest. So weed, 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 weed. Moving on to number four, we're talking pruning and trellising. So if you have vining plants like tomatoes or cucumbers, you can tie those to stakes or trellises or you can use cages. But even more stout plants like uh, eggplant and peppers can benefit from being staked up, especially when they have a really heavy load of fruit. I have had even jalapeno um, pepper plants fall over because the load of those peppers was just so heavy. And I'm also experimenting this year with trellising some zucchini to see if it makes a difference in the plant health and production. So not only does trellising keep the developing fruits up off the ground, which prevents damage from too much moisture or insects um, or animals at the ground level stacking on them, but it also can help improve the airflow and the air circulation um, to help reduce the risk of disease. Now, in the same vein, pruning any excess foliage also does the same thing. It improves that air circulation. It reduces that risk of disease. And you also want to be cutting off any leaves that look to be damaged or diseased because they can just help to continue to spread those diseases. Now, be careful, though, to not remove too much of the foliage because in that instance, you might be allowing for sun scald, especially on tomatoes and pepper plants. So you don't want to be removing too much of the foliage that is above the developing fruit. So anything that is below the lowest level of fruit, I usually will prune off specifically on tomatoes just to improve that airflow and pruning them to get them up off the ground helps to get us to a harvest with less damaged fruit. As we head into the summer heat, our garden plants may need a little help to get through. Now's the time I start using my bloom juice from Elm Dirt as a foliar spray in my garden for all my flowering and fruiting plants. Elm Dirt has a new code for friends of the podcast with a buy one, get one free offer. Just go to justgrowsomethingpodcast.com slash dirt and use code WOLFCREEK, all caps, all one word at checkout and get your second item of equal or lesser value for free. JustGrowSomethingPodcast.com slash dirt with code WolfCreek. The link is in the show notes. So number five here is pest management. You want to be monitoring your plants for pests in order to minimize the damage. I am not one for using any synthetic chemicals or anything in the garden to manage insect pests. Everything that I do is organic, and these methods can be effective as long as we are fairly consistent about it. You know, handpicking is as tedious as it can be really is a great way to remove insects and larvae and eggs of the ones that we don't want while still allowing the good bugs or the beneficial bugs to be able to do their job. So we're not spraying things willy-nilly that might hit anything and everything. We are regularly inspecting our plants and manually removing what we don't want there. 
Um, using physical barriers like row covers or netting, that insect mesh that I use uh, to help protect plants from insect pests um, really is very, very effective. This is specifically very useful for things like aphids, and cabbage worms, um, and flea beetles. We've had great success specifically in our brassicas from preventing all of those cabbage worms and such. I have used that this year in the zucchini, um, and you can go back and listen to the um, episode that I did on Parthenocarpi. We're using the insect netting to help protect from the squash vine borer and the cucumber beetles and the squash bugs. So far, so good. I will give you guys an update on that later on. You can also use sticky traps. You can put those in and around the garden. Although again, those are very indiscriminate. So using the sticky traps, you're gonna you're gonna catch the good ones and the bad ones. And so I try to stay away from those unless there's something very specific that I'm going for. Biological controls. Now this one can be a little bit tricky because you know bringing in beneficial insects or organisms that prey on or parasitize the ones, the insect pests that we're trying to keep out of our garden can be beneficial in a sort of controlled environment. Like this has worked well for us in our greenhouse, bringing in ladybugs. Unfortunately, what I have discovered is that a lot of times ladybugs, these are not like bred in a lot of instances to be sold for insect control. They are harvested wild. And there is a problem with folks going out and collecting these and actually decimating native populations. So I'm a little hesitant to to recommend purchasing ladybugs and lacewings and, and parasitic wasps to add to our gardens, especially since once you release them in the garden, you know, you're hoping that they're going to stick around and go after, you know, what it is that you want them to go after, but there's nothing keeping them there and they may just fly away and go to your neighbor's garden. Um, but things like beneficial nematodes and BT, um, the Bacillus thuringiensis, these are biological controls that are effective against certain soil dwelling pests and for caterpillars. So those are some things that you can actually use in addition to neem oil and insecticidal soap. Again, these are a little broad spectrum, so be careful about when and how you are applying them so that you're not affecting the pollinators and the other good bugs. And one of the things that we don't talk about a whole lot when we talk about insect pests is making sure that we have a healthy soil, right? So because if we have a healthy soil, we're going to have healthy plants. And maintaining a healthy soil fertility and plant vigor is actually making those plants much more resilient to pests and helping them be better equipped to withstand those attacks. So if you want to reduce the amount of time that you're spending going through and checking for insect pests and managing them, then making sure that we are focusing on good soil health and good plant health is a good, really good place to start. Number six on our list is disease prevention. We want to be vigilant for signs of any plant diseases and take preventative measures when we can. Signs of plant diseases is going to vary depending on the specific type of disease, the affected plant, where you're gardening. But some of the common signs to look out for are leaf spots and discoloration, wilting or drooping, and I mean sudden wilting or drooping of the leaves and the stems, um, especially during like 
the morning time when the soil moisture should be really sufficient. You don't want to walk out there in the middle of the day, like three o'clock in the afternoon when the sun has been beating down and see that your plants are wilting and go, oh no, I have a disease. They're likely just you know, protecting themselves and keeping their the um, evaporation down at that point. But if you go out there first thing in the morning and suddenly you're seeing that they are completely wilted or they're drooping, or you go out in the evening when they should have recovered and they still are wilted, then you might have some problems like a root rot um, from fungal pathogens. So that's something to look out for. Um, stunted growth or any abnormal growths like uh, galls or swellings on the stems or the leaves, um, that can indicate that there is some sort of an infection by a pathogen or even a pest. Some of these will also be indicated when you have a certain insect pest. Um, leaf curling or distortion, powdery and fuzzy growth, you know, powdery mildew and downy mildew are very, very common. Um, so if you see like fuzzy growth of some sort, that's usually a fungal disease. Yellowing or modeling of the leaves. This can be from a disease. This can also be from nutrient deficiency. So you kind of have to know what your plants are prone to in your area in order to know what to look for. Premature leaf drop. This is another one. If you have some premature defoliation, this is oftentimes in response to a disease, specifically fungal infections like leaf blights or rust diseases. Um, the leaves may turn brown or yellow before falling off the plant, but not always. So it's always a good idea to make yourself familiar with what the most prevalent diseases are for what it is that you are growing in your area because all of these signs, or most of them anyway, can have multiple causes. So it could be a plant disease, but it also could be environmental stress or it could be a nutrient deficiency. So if you suspect that it is a plant disease, then get with one of your local extension agents or a very experienced gardener in your area and try to get like an accurate diagnosis so you can figure out what your treatment options are. Number seven is to monitor for nutrient or pH imbalances, okay? You should be regularly inspecting your plants for signs of nutrient deficiency. Sometimes this isn't gonna be nutrients. Sometimes it's gonna be a pH issue. Hopefully we have done a soil test and we know where we're starting with, but that doesn't mean that things can't change throughout the season. Again, a lot of these are very similar to what we see when we have diseases, plant discoloration, stunted growth, the leaf deformities or abnormalities. If you have reduced fruiting or flowering, that is generally definitely a lack of essential nutrients they're going to produce fewer flowers or fruits. Phosphorus deficiency specifically will result in poor fruit development. Potassium deficiency can lead to fewer flowers or smaller fruits. So when you see that your plants aren't flowering or fruiting um, as readily as they should be, usually it's an essential nutrient issue, but also know that high heat can also be a factor with a lack of flowers or with flowers dropping too. So pay attention to your environmental factors as well. 
And then know that some plants are sensitive to soil pH levels. So if your pH is too high or too low for what it is that you're growing, then they're going to act stressed out. So, I mean, blueberries, they're very typically what we talk about when we talk about pH-sensitive plants because they prefer an acidic soil. So if your soil is very alkaline and you're trying to grow blueberries, they may end up showing signs of an iron deficiency because the iron just can't move through the soil into the plant the way that it needs to. So again, doing a soil test is going to provide you much more accurate information about the nutrient levels and the pH so you can help figure out what it is that you need to do in order to amend your soil or use fertilizer and do some sort of nutrient supplementation. And finally, this last one um, might seem obvious, but you'd be surprised. Number eight is harvesting. Obviously, this is the reason why we're growing our gardens, right? We're trying to grow food and we want to be harvesting. But not harvesting regularly can actually encourage your plants to stop producing. So if you're not picking the fruit when it is ready to be pulled, it's signaling to the plant, oh, okay, well, now we have done our job. We have produced a fruit. It's getting ready to drop to the ground and spread the seeds. So my job here is done and I don't have to produce anymore. So harvesting encourages that continuous production. It, it helps redirect the plant's energy towards producing more fruit. It also prevents overripening. Like if you've grown zucchini or cucumbers, you know you can walk out there one day and be out there looking and go, ah, oh, that one's kind of ready, but not quite. I'm going to give it another day and then I will come out and pick it. And then two or three days goes by and suddenly you go out there and you have a baseball bat size zucchini or a cucumber the size of a boat. So my advice is, speaking from experience, if it looks like it's almost ready, just pick it. Pull it, bring it in, let it start producing another one that you might want to get to the ideal size. The same thing goes with harvesting tomatoes. Yes, vine-ripened tomatoes taste the best, but you can harvest them at what we call the breaker stage where they're just starting to get their blush of color if you have a problem with not getting to them before they are overripe. You can pick them and just let them sit in your kitchen on the counter and they will continue to ripen over the next couple of days and be ready to eat versus not getting out there in time and having them be overripe and be mushy. Or this is especially helpful if you have animal pests who also wait for them to be beautifully, perfectly ripe and then they swoop in and they eat the tomatoes before you get a chance to pick them. Squirrels are notorious for this. So if you have that problem, then frequent harvesting at the breaker stage is going to be better off for you and you're not going to have as much loss to those, those pests. So just remember, harvesting frequently or regularly is going to encourage that continuous production and keep those plants going all the way through until your first frost. So those are my top eight. Those are the things that I really think we need to be paying attention to as we move through our summer garden. Of course, these specific tasks are going to vary depending on your location and your climate and the types of plants that you're growing. So it's always a good idea to kind of research and consider the very specific requirements of whatever it is that you are growing to make sure that you get your best possible harvest. So I hope that your summer garden is looking fantastic and you are getting all kinds of fabulous harvests out of it. 
keep in mind with this whole task list thing, none of us is perfect. We're not going to get to all of it. And even if we do, there may still be issues that we face in the gardens. Trust me, I am facing plenty of them right now in my own. So don't feel like you've done something wrong if you have gone through this entire list and done everything that you're supposed to and you still end up having problems in your garden. It happens. We're trying to control Mother Nature and, well, she does a better job of it than we do. Until next time, my gardening friends, keep on cultivating this dream garden and we'll talk to you again soon. You just finished another episode of the Just Grow Something podcast. For more information about today's topic, go to justgrowsomethingpodcast.com where you can find all the episodes, show notes, articles, courses, newsletter sign up, and more. I'd also love for you to head to Facebook and join our gardening community in the Just Grow Something Gardening Friends Facebook group. So if you want more than the overview, um, <clears throat> wow. Those are biological controls that are really good against certain doyles, doyle, doyle selling. Wait, wait. Until next time, my gardening friends, keep learning and keep growing.